Today we begin a new sermon series entitled The Life of Joseph. There are very few biblical characters that receive more scripture space than Joseph. His story is told in Genesis chapters 37 to 50. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to learn some valuable lessons on forgiveness and faithfulness. Yet this morning, our story begins with a very disturbing passage of scripture. It's disturbing because of all of the jealousy, competition, hatred, and deception that permeates the story. But what makes it even worse is that those are words that describe the faith family of God. Joseph's family is the family that's been sovereignly selected by God to bring about the blessing into the entire world. For God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and through them, the blessing would come to the entire world. And those words of deception and greed and jealousy, they describe God's people. Certainly, it must be noted that the family that's recorded for us in Genesis is a family that put the dis in dysfunctional. They are dysfunctional at every level. And this morning, I want us to think about a chapter 37 experience. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Genesis chapter 37. I'll be reading verses 12 to 36. I ask you to stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 37, I'll begin at verse 12, read through verse 36. Please hear the word of the Lord. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Oh, they've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in a distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other, come now, let's kill him, throw him into, this, into these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said, don't shed any blood, throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but do not lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it, and they sat down to eat their meal. They looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. 
When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took that ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph to Egypt, in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. In order for us to better understand the life of Joseph, we would do well to know something about his father, Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Jacob's name means trickster, and many times in his life, he lived up to that name. He tricked his brother out of a birthright. He tricked his father into a blessing. We are told that Jacob had four wives. Two of them were sisters. The Bible says that Rachel was lovely in form and beauty, but Leah, she had weak eyes. In our common day vernacular, what the scripture is communicating is that Rachel was smoking hot, but Leah, well, she had a good personality. <laughs> to say that she had weak eyes is to say that her eyes lacked the luster of inner beauty that radiates out of a woman who is beautiful in form. To make matters worse, Leah's name actually means wild cow. That can't be good. It doesn't bode well for marital bliss, does it? I mean, Jacob must have been a, a guy like most guys, and probably there were days when he was rather insensitive, and, and when he came home, I mean, I can only imagine he would say, hey, heifer, what's for dinner? I mean, you know, that can't go well. And when she gets angry, accuse her of having mad cow disease, I mean, that can't go well either. I'm sure that they probably needed a lot of marital counseling because any woman whose name means wild cow, it can't go well for marital bliss. Both Rachel and Leah belonged to their father Laban, and Jacob was willing to work for the hand in marriage. So he went to Laban and he said, oh, what must I do to win your daughter's hand? And Laban said, you've got to be my servant for seven years. The Bible says that seven years passed like seven days because of his love for Rachel. And on the wedding night, the trickster got tricked. Somehow, Laban dressed up Leah and presented her unto Jacob. Maybe the, uh, the wedding gown went from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. But the next day, after the wedding had been consummated, it's Jacob who wakes up and looks over. And what to his wondering eyes should appear but an ugly woman whose name means wild cow. And there went a tear. And Jacob... He ran to his father-in-law Laban and said, what are you doing? Well, I worked all these years for Rachel, not for Leah. And Laban said, in our culture, 
The older daughter must be given first. That's Leah. You want Rachel? You got to work another seven years. Because of Jacob's love for Rachel, he was willing to work for her an additional seven years. And after 14 years of hard manual labor, Jacob had two wives. Jacob wanted to start a family. The Bible says that Rachel was barren. But Leah was the opposite of barren. She was punching out babies like a paintball gun. Tat, 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 tat. I mean, the Bible says that, that, that in a matter of no time, she gave Jacob five sons. There's so much competition, so much jealousy in this whole story that, that Rachel has had it up to here. And she says, listen, I'm not going to be outdone by my sister Leah. And even though I can't produce a child, I'm going to give my husband, my maidservant, as his third wife. And maybe he can produce a family through her. I know that may sound weird to us, but in those days it was kind of common practice so uh, so Rachel decided to give her maidservant as the third wife of Jacob and that maidservant's name was Bilhah the Bible doesn't say anything about how Bilhah looked but with a name like Bilhah what do you think but she was fruitful and she conceived gave birth not to one but two sons well, now Leah is not going to be outdone by Rachel's maidservant. So what does Leah do? Leah says, I'm going to give my maidservant as the fourth wife of Jacob. Her name is Zilpah. You got to be kidding me, right? Her name is Zilpah, and Zilpah is married to Jacob, and she produces two additional children. In the meantime, Leah gave another son. So now Jacob, in a span of time, has ten sons, six of them from Leah, two of them from Bilhah, two of them from Zilpah, and none of them from Rachel now all joking aside if you and your spouse know the struggle of not being able to get pregnant you know the depth of frustration that Rachel felt in these days to not conceive and give birth to a son was regarded as shameful and embarrassing and Rachel grieved. And Jacob grieved because Rachel was the, the love of his life. And then in the story, we read these infamous words that God remembered Rachel. Ah, sweet words. God remembered Rachel, opened her womb. She gave birth to a bouncing baby boy. And what's his name? His name is Joseph. He is the beloved son of his daddy and his lovely wife, Rachel. And everybody is excited and happy because Joseph was born. And God is so gracious that he opened Rachel's womb a second time. She conceived, gave birth to a second son, his name Benjamin. But in the process of delivering Benjamin, Rachel died. With the death of Rachel was the death of part of Jacob. Jacob, who elsewhere in Scripture is called Israel, now he has 12 sons the 12 tribes of Israel. And now he has this, this wonderful family, but yet he has to navigate life without the love of his life. Yeah, he has three other wives, but he has to navigate life without Rachel. By the time we get to Genesis 37, Joseph is 17 years old. And most people regard Joseph at this time of his life as a spoiled, 
arrogant brat of a teenager. Moms and dads, can I get an amen? I mean, he is a teenager who thinks he rules the roost. He is a teenager who thinks he can take the world by the tail. He is a teenager who is just arrogant. And much of the time, the reason he is arrogant is because daddy enabled him to be arrogant. Jacob never got any father of the year awards. Jacob was guilty of favoritism. And he flaunted that favoritism. He made it known to all of his sons, Joseph is my boy. Joseph is my pride and joy. Joseph is the apple of my eye. Everybody knew that Joseph was the darling son of daddy. And what do you think is going to happen? All types of jealousy begins to emerge in this holy family. All types of jealousy and competition and greed and envy. And Jacob doesn't do anything about it. Now, don't get me wrong. The other brothers, they're scoundrels. I mean, it's not like they're angels. They're always mischievous. They're always getting into trouble. Scripture says they cannot say a kind word about Joseph. They can't even think of a nice word to say about their brother. And at some level, I can't blame them because daddy had always flaunted his favoritism of Joseph in front of his brothers. In fact, in the Verse 11, the, the, the verse preceding our passage today, it says that his brothers were jealous of him, but Jacob kept this in mind. In other words, he did nothing about it. He did nothing to remedy the situation. He did nothing to reconcile the relationships. Hey, mom and dad, we've got an obligation to our family that they produce, that we produce sons and daughters who are godly guys and godly gals. And what does that mean? It means that they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they love each other as they love themselves. The best gift you can give to your family is that you show how you love God and you love them. And where there are places of favoritism, that has to be stamped out. And where there are places where, recon where relationships are not reconciled, as moms and dads, spiritual leaders of the home, we've got to do our best to teach our children how to love each other and get along with each other. Jacob did none of that. In fact, the icing on the cake is that he gave Joseph a richly ornamented coat. We call it the coat of many colors. Really what that was, was a retirement plan. In the Hebrew language, the description of this richly ornamented coat gives the imagery that, that this jacket was long sleeve. It went all the way down to the wrist. And, and the fabric flowed all the way down to the ankles. In other words, this is not the attire of a hard-working farmer. This is not the attire of a, of a shepherd. So what Jacob is saying to his lovely son Joseph, his favorite boy, he's saying, hey, don't you worry. You don't have to lift a finger. You don't have to work as hard as your other brothers. It's not that Jacob didn't give his other children clothes. Oh, no, he gave them clothes. But he gave them the attire of a hard-working farmer. They had the clothing that was likened to a, a cut-off T-shirt and a pair of shorts. 
That's what a farmer would wear in the first century. That's what a farmer would wear in antiquity. This is what they would wear so they'd have full range of motion of their arms and legs because you got to get down and get with those woolly animals, those, 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 those sheep, and you got to work the soil. And so that's the clothing of a hardworking person, but that's not the clothing of Joseph. No, Joseph sat on the porch and he sipped lemonade and sat there beside his daddy and watched how everybody else did all the work. What do you think is going to happen? A great deal of animosity is going to rise up among the family. And Jacob does nothing about it. In fact, he continues in this favoritism of his son Joseph. Now also to make matters worse, Joseph was a dreamer. He had dreams. Now, everybody has dreams, right? I mean, we've got various dreams of what we want to do. And when we're 17 years old, we've got massive dreams, right? We're going to take over the world. We're going to take the world by storm. And Joseph had these massive dreams, and he would tell his brothers about it. Mistake number one. <laughs> he would go to his brothers and say, hey, guys, one day y'all going to bow down to me. He had a dream one time where he was the center of the universe and everything else revolved around him. And what did he do? Did he keep it to himself? Oh no, not our Joseph, buddy. He goes and he tells all of his brothers, hey, you're going to come and bow down to me and I'm going to be the center of the universe and everything is going to revolve around me. Now at this point, we don't know if Joseph is off his rocker or we don't know if he's accurate in his interpretation of his dream. We just know he has a dream. And he's arrogant enough to tell it. By the time we get to our passage, this is a catastrophe waiting to happen. This is a bomb that's about to explode. For some reason, Father Jacob said to his ten oldest sons, why don't you guys take the sheep so they can graze in Shechem, north of where we live? Now, why Father Jacob did this, I don't know. Maybe it's because the animosity was so intense that he just realized they, they, they've got to get out or something bad's going to happen. Or maybe there was a famine that was going on. There weren't a whole lot of pasture lands uh, there in, in Hebron. And so regardless, he said, I, I want you to go up to Shechem and graze the sheep there. The boys were gone far too long. Father Jacob knew they're probably in trouble. They've probably done something they weren't supposed to do. They may be in jail for all I know. So then he decides to send Joseph. He sends Joseph by himself. In hindsight, probably not a wise decision. He sends Joseph, his beloved son. He keeps Benjamin there uh, with him. He sends Joseph, and he sends Joseph by himself. Joseph goes to Shechem, and he's looking for his brothers. He asks everybody, hey, have you seen a band of ten rowdy rednecks? They've got a bunch of sheep with them. They belong to my father's uh, farm and household, and, and they've come to graze. Have you seen them? No, you haven't. Okay, have you seen my brothers? About ten band of rowdy rednecks, uh, and, and you can't miss them. They're very loud and obnoxious. And, and they're here with a bunch of sheep. Have you seen them? No, I haven't seen them. Okay, what about you? Have you seen my brothers? And he goes around to ask everybody. But in our story, there's an anonymous man that's plopped right there in the field. There's no introduction to this man. We don't know who he is. But he comes up and he asks a great question. What are you looking for, Joseph? Oh, that's a great question. And Joseph says, well, I'm looking for my rowdy brothers. And, and I wonder if you've seen them. He says, oh, yeah, I've seen those guys. No, they're not here. They went eight miles north. They went eight miles north to Dothan. 
If you go there, I think you're going to find them. And without even asking the man his name, Joseph just simply turns around and walks away. This man just introduced, and there in the fields, he's anonymous. He directs Joseph to go on to Dothan. Joseph makes his way towards Dothan. He's still a long way off, and his brothers see him. You know how they see him? Because he's still strutting in that blasted coat of many colors. You could see that thing from a mile away. They look over the horizon, and here comes that richly ornamented robe. Joseph is wearing it. The animosity just begins to explode inside their belly. One of them says to the other, let's just kill him. Really? (laughs) It's gotten that bad? Let's just kill him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. What makes matters worse is that other people said, that's a pretty good idea. (laughs) I like that idea. Yeah, let's just kill him. It's Reuben, the firstborn, who speaks up and says, hey guys, let's not shed his blood. Let's not kill him. We can rough him up a little bit. We can throw him in one of these empty cisterns, but let's not kill him. The fact that the cistern was empty also lends itself to the fact that it probably was a famine in the land. There's no water. There's no pasture land. So they have a bunch of empty wells, empty cisterns, and they say, well, let's just throw him in this one because... There's no water in it. So he comes and they beat him up a little bit. They strip him of that blasted robe. They shove him down into the hole in the ground. Now, Reuben didn't want to kill him, not because he cares for Joseph. Reuben doesn't care for Joseph. Reuben is looking out for Reuben. Reuben should be in the spot of favoritism. Why? Because he's the oldest. The firstborn should be the favored child of the father. And so Reuben is devising this plan where he thinks to himself, now wait a minute, I can go and rescue Joseph and I can look like a hero to father Jacob and I can take him back and say, hey, listen, all your other sons wanted to kill him, but I stood up for him and I stood in his place and I've rescued him. Now, can I have the coat of many colors? Can I be the favorite child? This is what Reuben, Reuben is not being nice. He's just looking out for Reuben. By the way, I have told you, this is the family of God, right? This is the family of God. What I'm just glad about is that we've come a mighty long way and we don't act like Joseph's family, right? Deception, selfishness, egotism, greed, jealousy, hatred. So Reuben left maybe to go get some lunch, maybe to look after some of the sheep. And while he's away, with Joseph still being in the cistern, it's Judah who speaks up. Judah is the fourth born son. And Judah says, you know what? Maybe Reuben's right. Maybe we shouldn't kill him. I mean, after all, he is our brother. His blood is our blood. Maybe we shouldn't kill him. Um, I'll tell you what, why don't we just sell him? Okay, that's a good idea. Let's just sell him. But who are we going to sell him to? Here we are in this desert, God-forsaken area of, of Dothan. Who, who's who's going to come? And all of a sudden, they looked up, and over the horizon popped a band of gypsies. These, these Midianite merchants came uh, trucking through. And somebody said, ha that's an answer to prayer. God wants us to sell our brother because he supplied the merchants to come. And so they go up, and they say, hey, we've got a guy that we want to sell to you. He'll be a great servant. He hadn't worked a day in his life, but he's going to be a great slave. Now, what's the going rate for a slave? 
20 shekels of silver. These guys aren't smart, but they're fast enough to be able to do simple math. There's 10 of them for 20 shekels of silver. Each one would get two silver shekels. Judah thinks to himself, wow, this is a great idea. Not only do I make some money, but I get rid of my problem. That's the American way, right? I mean, let's just make some money, get rid of the problem. Voila, this is wonderful. So that's what they decide to do. And they sell Joseph. Can you imagine the look on Joseph's face when they pulled him up out of the cistern? I mean, he's, he's beaten up a bit. He's bruised a bit. And they stand, stand him up and they say, hey, buddy, we're, we're selling you to people we've never seen before and we'll never see again. Can you imagine? What does that do to the psyche of Joseph? What, what does that do to him? What was he thinking right now? Okay, guys, look, I know we don't get along, but seriously? Really? I know we, I mean, we don't love each other, but seriously, you're going to sell me? You're, you're going to give me up for 20 shekels of silver? Really? And off they go. Reuben eventually comes back, and he goes to that dry well. He looks in there, and there's no Joseph. He begins to freak out, and he says, hey, hey, where's the boy? And Judah said, oh, pipe down. Listen, I took care of it. And here, here are your two silver shekels. And Reuben goes, okay, great, good idea. And he puts the money in his pocket. And then um, they say, you know, we, we got to do something. We got to come up with some story. So they took that richly ornamented coat, that gift from the father. They killed a goat. They took the robe and they dipped it in the goat's blood. They took it back to their father. By this time, Father Jacob is getting up in age. They think to themselves, the old man won't know any difference. He'll just assume that a ferocious animal devoured his beloved son, Joseph. When they pop over into the family farm, Jacob's there. He's sitting beside Benjamin. He expects to count 11 men, but he doesn't. He counts 10. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He counts them again, 10. Whoa, counts them again, 10. Where is Joseph? They get close to him. They bring him the coat of many colors. They put it in his lap. Jacob takes that coat and he brings it close to his eyes. And yes, he recognizes that that's the beloved coat of his wonderful son, Joseph. He can smell the blood of the animal that has stained that jacket. And he, he begins to grieve. He begins to weep. He begins to automatically assume a ferocious animal has devoured my beloved son. And he's ripped him to shreds. And surely, surely Joseph is dead. And I'll go down to my grave grieving the loss of my son. And as he's weeping and as he's crying and as he's grieving, the other ten brothers say nothing. Can you imagine the depth of hatred you have to have in your heart? Can you imagine how much you've got to despise somebody? To keep that secret so that you're watching your dad as he's grieving and crying and bawling and you know the truth but you won't speak it? Can you imagine the depth of that twisted sinfulness? The brothers say nothing. 
We are told that once Joseph made his way down into Egypt, he was sold to Potiphar. Potiphar was a high-ranking official in Pharaoh's cabinet. He was the captain of the guard. And that's the story. That's how our study begins. With all that deception and all that greed and jealousy, all that twisted sinfulness, and that's the family of God. <laughs> that, that's the people of the Lord through whom the blessing to all the world is going to come. As I read that story, uh, I ask the question that Joseph must have asked. Where is God in all of this? Where is God? Do you realize that in chapter 37, there is no mention of God anywhere? You don't find his name, not at all. You don't find Lord written in all capital letters. You don't find Jehovah, Yahweh. You, you don't find God Almighty. You don't find any reference to God at all in chapter 37. And Joseph must have, must have asked the question, where is God in all of this? That's a legitimate question, isn't it? Where is God? In all of this, as he makes his uh, bumpy journey down from Dothan to Egypt, and Egypt was believed to be the God-forsaken place where, where nothing, it's the end of the earth. As he makes his way down to the end of the earth, he must have thought, God, where are you? What, what are you doing? I can't see you. I can't feel you. I can't experience you. God, where are you? I've always been taught and told that God is always at work. Sometimes he's on the forefront, sometimes in the background, but God's always at work. God never takes a day off. He, he never is asleep at the wheel. He never goes away on vacation. God is God, and he's always working. I've also been told and taught that in biblical narrative, especially Old Testament narrative, there are no throwaway statements. There's no... Um, filler. There, there, there are no uh, statements that the author just stuffs into the story, just kind of move the story along. In fact, that according uh, to many uh, commentators and theologians, that, that Old Testament uh, narrative never has an insignificant detail. Everything is important. Every detail of the story is important. And, and the more bizarre the detail is, the more significant it probably is. So as I think about that, that God is always at work and there are no insignificant details in Old Testament narrative, I begin to look back over this story and I think to myself, well, where could we find any evidence of God? Where can we find the fingerprints of God in chapter 37? And there's one detail that is so bizarre that it jumps off the page. It's the anonymous man in Shechem. He just plops there right in the field there's no introduction to him that there's no explanation of where he came from or who he is or what his name is he just kind of comes and he directs joseph joseph what are you looking for that my friends is a great god question what are you looking for what are you looking for in this life what are you looking for here in shechem what are you looking for here in pelham what are you looking for what are you seeking that's a great question everybody has to ask it everybody has to answer it and here this man asked joseph what are you looking for well i'm looking for my brothers oh they're not here they've gone eight miles north you go and find them there and without even asking his name joseph just goes in obedience 
I think that in that anonymous man, you find the evidence of God. You say, wait a minute, pastor. Are you trying to tell me, are you trying to tell me that that, that, that anonymous man, who, by the way, directed Joseph to Dothan, which inevitably directed him to Egypt. Are you trying to tell me that that's God's responsibility? Are you trying to tell me that God even orchestrates Joseph's plan of suffering? Are you meaning to tell me that God is even in control of the journey of agony that Joseph goes on or that any of his children go on? And all I'm saying is this, what the Apostle Paul will write 2,000 years later, I say to you today, that we know that God works in all things to bring about the good for his people, those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That we know that God works in all things, the pleasant things and the painful things, the terrific things and the terrible things. God works in all things. He orchestrates all things for his good pleasure. He orchestrates all things for his good in your life, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you are a child of God, and if you're in the family of God, then God directs your steps, and he sovereignly selects you to go here, go there, and he is the one who orchestrates all of your life, even the chapter 37s. Because our God always works, and he's always in charge. And whatever he permits, he does promote for his good and his glory. This is an important detail. All you got to do is pull the thread and you see how important it is. Just tug on it just a little bit. Because if Joseph had not met this anonymous man, Joseph would not have gone to Dothan. If Joseph had not gone to Dothan, he, knew he would not have been sold into slavery in Egypt. Had he not been sold into slavery in Egypt, he would not have gotten to the care of Potiphar's household. Had he not become part of Potiphar's household, he would not have been attempted to be seduced by Mrs. Potiphar. Had Mrs. Potiphar not attempted to seduce him, then he would not have landed himself in prison on trumped-up charges of rape. Had he not landed himself in prison on trumped-up charges of rape, then his ability to interpret dreams would not have been made known. Had his ability to interpret dreams not been made known, then he would not have been in Pharaoh's court. Had he not been in Pharaoh's court, he would not have risen to second in command over all of Egypt. Had he not risen to second in command over all of Egypt, he would not have been able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Had he not been able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, he would not have advised the Pharaoh for for seven years of prosperity, store grain, because seven years of famine are on the way. Had he not advised Pharaoh that seven years of prosperity will be followed by seven years of famine, then his brothers would not have come to Egypt during the famine in search of grain. Had his brothers not come to Egypt in search of grain, he would not have been reunited with his father and his brother. Had he not been reunited with his father and brothers, then they would not have come and lived in Egypt. Had they not come and lived in Egypt, then the Hebrew people would not have grown so numerous in Egypt. Had the Hebrew people not grown so numerous in in Egypt, then a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph would not have come to power in fear of them. And if a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph had not come in power in fear of them, then there had been no enslavement. Had there been no enslavement, there would be no exodus. Had there been no exodus, there would be no return to the promised land. Had there been no return to the promised land, then there would be no kings and judges. Had there been no kings and judges, then King David would not establish his line and, and lineage. Had King David not established his line and lineage, there would be no united kingdom of Israel. Had was there, if there was no united kingdom of Israel, there would be no divided kingdom with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. If there was no divided kingdom, 
kingdom of Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Then in 722, the Assyrians would not have invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. And if the Assyrians had not invaded the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, then the barbaric Babylonians would not have come into Judah in 586 BC. Had the barbaric Babylonians not come into Judah in 586 BC, there'd be no Babylonian captivity. If there were no Babylonian captivity, then there'd be no return to Jerusalem. If there was no return to Jerusalem, then the temple and the wall would still be in shambles. If the temple and the wall were still in shambles, then there would be no prophets like Ezra and Nehemiah, Habakkuk and Malachi. And if there were no prophets like Ezra and Nehemiah, Habakkuk and Malachi, then there'd be no last prophet. And if there was no last prophet like John the Baptist, then there'd be no prophet, priest, and king like Jesus. And if there was no prophet, priest, and king like Jesus, then there'd be no crucifixion. And if there was no crucifixion for your sins and mine, then there'd be no resurrection. And if there was no resurrection, then there'd be no ascension. If there was no ascension, then you and I would have no hope. We'd still be dead in our sins. What I'm trying to say is that God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footprints in the sea and he rides upon every storm. All you got to do is pull the thread of the detail and everything falls into place. God is at work in chapter 37. You may come into this house today and you may find yourself in chapter 37. A chapter of life where there's a lot of jealousy, competition, resentfulness. A chapter of life where there are broken promises, failed marriages, damaged relationships, financial difficulties. You may come in chapter 37, you may be there this morning, and the wheels are about to fall off of your life. And you wonder, where is God in all of this? Where is God? I came this morning to tell you God is always at work, even in chapter 37. Because you hang on, because chapter 50 is coming. It's going to take us eight weeks to get there, but I promise you chapter 50 is coming. And in chapter 50, when Joseph is reunited with his brothers, he will make this bold statement. What you intended for harm, God intended for good. He has the capacity to turn upside down and inside out the evil plans of the devil. And what you intended for harm, God intended for good for the saving of many lives. I came this morning to tell you there's another chapter 37. There's another chapter 37 on a hill called Calvary. When Jesus, the God-man, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, but counting men's sins against him. God was behind the scenes, yet early on Sunday morning, Jesus rose up with all power and healing in his hands. You hang on in chapter 37 because chapter 50 is on its way. So maybe you're here and you find yourself torn apart. It's a tough chapter, season of life. It's chapter 37. You're dealing with junk that you didn't know you were going to have to deal with. You're inheriting junk from your ancestors, your family before you. And it's coming down generation upon generation. And you got to deal with some junk. I want to tell you that everybody lives in one of three perspectives to chapter 37. Either you're about to enter it, or you find yourself in the middle of it, or you just came out of it, and it's in your rearview mirror. But regardless of where you find yourself today, God 
is with you. We're going to discover that in this study of the life of Joseph, one of the most powerful phrases, the Lord was with Joseph. It's going to show up time and time again. The Lord was with Joseph in the pit, in the palace. The Lord was with Joseph. And this is the promise that God gives to all of his children, all in the faith family. God is with you, even in chapter 37. Because you hang on. Because 50 is coming. So you're here this morning, and maybe you don't know Jesus personally. Can I tell you that the only way for me to be able to decipher accurately chapter 37 in my life is through the lens of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, I can't make heads or tails about chapter 37. It doesn't make sense. I throw up my hands in despair. But in Christ, I know God is working even in chapter 37. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Maybe you're here today and you're looking for a church home. This is a great place to belong. It's not perfect, but there's no church that is. But this is a great place for you. Maybe you need to come and lay all your cares on the altar, all your church, chapter 37 junk. Just lay it here. As God leads, you respond. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. And Lord, we thank you for this day. We pray that you will have your way in our hearts and our minds. Help us to look for you even in chapter 37, especially in chapter 37. And may the Lord be with his people. God, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.